This is Come and See by Father Ron Baird for February 20th, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How you doing so far? often have times when people go, well, what exactly is it you have to do? Usually it's a particular thing like in fasting or something where they want to know exactly what the rules are. You know, and people who are new to the church want to know exactly what the rules are. When do you stand? When do you kneel? When do you sit? And, all. and if if anybody ever wants to know what all the what the rules really are, that's the rule. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Once you've gotten there, Everything else is a piece of cake. No big deal. It's kind of an oddity in a world where nobody's perfect is sort of a mantra, isn't it? It's also a great excuse. You notice nobody ever says that when they do well. Um, and they only say it when they're, when they're not doing well. But nobody's perfect is kind of a norm, and, and there's truth in it. I mean, it's not that it's not true. But it kind of flies in the face of this because Jesus doesn't say, think about being perfect, strive to be perfect. You know, it would be nice if you were perfect. He says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And the truth is, is that all of those things that we had before that don't really make much sense apart from that, do they? You know, on the one hand, he says, if someone hits you on your right cheek, turn the other. Now, that's particularly a bad thing because if somebody is going to hit you on, their, on your right cheek, which hand do they use? Left. You know what people did with their left hand? It was unclean. That was what you used when you went to the bathroom. So it was a particular insult. That was why he said right cheek. He wanted to make it very, very clear how disgusting it was. It was, it was probably the greatest insult you could give to someone in many ways. And he says, if anyone asks you to borrow your coat, give them your cloak too. If anyone, you know, begs from you, give to them. I say to you, don't hate your enemies and love your friends. Love your enemies. How you all doing with that one? Think about love your enemy. Somebody who is intentionally trying to do you harm, love them. You know, and we hear those things all the time, and, and a lot of times we would want to say, okay, those are the rules, that's what I've got to do. But how realistic is it? I mean, do we really try to live that way and to do those things? If we did, we'd kind of be doormats, wouldn't we? I mean, dictators would rule the planet if we did that, wouldn't they? Because nobody would ever stop them. They would just do whatever they wanted. So clearly there's something that we are missing unless we believe that God wants dictators to rule the planet, and it really is just survival of the fittest and you know, might makes right and all those kinds of things. You know, Maybe we've had the wrong idea. Maybe we should do as little as possible and then just beg. 
from people. And that way, you know, because if you think about it, if that's the rule, and and my and I'm smart, what I would say is, since the rule is that if I ask you for something, you should give it to me. I want you to give me all of your wealth. Now, the only problem with that is that then I have to avoid everybody for the rest of my life because then I'd have to give it to you too if you came back and asked me for it. And you see the problem where it comes in? So what is it that Jesus is talking about here? <clears throat> is he, does he not know what he's talking about? Is it just pie in the sky? I mean, how does that make sense? Well, to get there, <clears throat> you really have to go to you know that phrase, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And you have to look at what it means to be perfect. If you are perfect in your schoolwork, what do you get? <laughs> More immediate than that. If you're perfect, what do you get? A, A plus, whatever they're calling it these days. If you're perfect at work, how would you know you were perfect at work? Well, you might get a raise even if you weren't perfect at work, though, so that wouldn't tell you you were perfect. How would you know if you were perfect? <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. We haven't figured it out, have we? All right. If a doctor is perfect it, with, you know, in, in treating people, then how would we know? They'd all be cured, right? If a plumber is perfect in, in you know, fixing plumbing and installing things, how would you know? It never leaks. Everything would be perfect all the time, right? Life would be wonderful. And that's part of the problem is that in our mind, that's what perfection means. Because we live in the world and we see things from worldly views. Because perfection has to do with making, uh, doing it right. Accomplishing, if you're at work, accomplishing for your uh, company, you know, things that will help them to prosper and make money because um, that's what they're in business for. Those are the things that, that ultimately in the world means perfect. You know, behaving in such a way that other people expect us to behave is to be perfect. What do children look like when they're perfect in church? <laughs> Don't know. <laughs> Hmm? They're quiet, yeah. Isn't that interesting? They're not at all like kids, but they're, <laughs> they are quiet. That's not what Jesus is talking about because that's not perfection. What that is is control. When Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, who's controlling God? And then we need to be controlled. He's God. I mean, <laughs> he is control. I mean, he's everything. So obviously perfection does not mean that kind of thing, does it? It doesn't mean success. It doesn't mean achievement. It doesn't mean um, meeting expectations. Because if you think about it, Jesus would, would have been a massive failure by all those measures. I mean, he only lived till he was, what, 32, 34 years old, and they killed him then, and, they, and he was a criminal. I mean, they executed him. That's not exactly what the world would say, there's a perfect person for you. And yet we know he's the only perfect person. 
The perfection that Jesus is talking about is actually from the word teleos, um, which means complete, whole. Be what it is that you were supposed to be. Now think about that for a minute, because if you go back to the Old Testament, when Moses was chatting with that bush, and he said, well, what's your name? What, what was he told? I am, or I'll be who I'll be. It's kind of, but it, it's, I am complete. I am all. I am what I'm called to be. I'm what I, I am. I'm God. And what Jesus is telling us is that we should be what we were created to be. So what should we do? What we were created to do. That's right. It wasn't a trick question. um, and, And that's where you truly come into the ability to be able to see those other things in that light. Because if you are truly being what God has called you to be and someone hits you on the cheek, then you are able to turn the other cheek. And why is that? Because God has called you to be there and to do it. You are whole. And them hitting you will not detract from that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor, um, now considered by many to be a saint um, in, in Nazi Germany. And he was part of the Confessing Church movement, which was a group of Lutherans um, in Germany who opposed Adolf Hitler. That wasn't a real popular position at the time. And he would preach outspokenly against what the Nazis were doing. And it got him in so much trouble, I mean, and actually he was even involved in, in the plot to assassinate Hitler. A pastor, picture that one a pastor planning to assassinate someone. And yet, he got caught, not for that, but for his other subversive activities, as they said, to the state, to the fatherland. And so they shipped him off to a concentration camp, the same ones that they put the Jews in. He died the day before it was liberated. Now, how is it that he could do that? How could he attain that? Why do we read so much about him now? Well, what we begin to realize is that he didn't see the wisdom of the world around him as being all that wise, did he? Because conventional wisdom in Germany said, let's see, before Hitler, um, we had no money, we had no jobs, our kids were starving. You know, most babies were died within the first year because the mothers were so malnourished that we weren't really able to, to you know, feed them properly. You know, and even if you did live longer, disease was rampant and there was very little that could be done about it. Let's see, after Hitler, we all have, we have jobs, we, we, we can buy cars, I mean, we've got an Autobahn, I mean, you know, we store German pride. Look how good everything is. What's your problem, Dietrich? We're a success. Now, it's easy for us, after World War II, to look back on that and say, no, it wasn't a success. Because we know the outcome, don't we? But it sure looked like it to an awful lot of people who were tired of starving. And so they would allow it. Dietrich didn't see that as success. He didn't see that as achievement. He didn't even see it as being um, something worthy of pursuing. 
Rather, what he saw as worth pursuing was the will of God. His most famous book, if you want to read something he's written, which is really fabulous, is called The Cost of Discipleship. It's really where we get the term cheap grace. You all ever heard that term? Cheap grace? They use it a lot in AA. That's where we get that term from. He was the one who first came up with it, although he said it in German. Um, but um, cheap grace is where you go, oh, thanks. You know, you died for me. I got it good. That's cheap. But what he says is that the grace that God gives is costly. It costs you your very being. Because no longer can you decide what you are and what you will be. From now on, God will decide what he created you to be, and you will strive to do that, no matter the cost. And in doing that, it's amazing because we can love our enemies. We can turn the other cheek. We can give to those who beg. We can help those, not because we have to or because there's some rule that got established, but because we don't live out of a limited resource, out of a limited supply. We live out of the abundance because we are what God created us to be. And we will only do that which God gives us to do. And God would not give us that to do if it wasn't going to work if it wasn't going to be what it was supposed to be. Somebody asked me at the last service, well, how do you explain the fact that some people are cast into the fires of hell at the end if, if you know, with all that kind of stuff, if, if we're called to be perfect? I said, well, let me ask you something. If you, are, if you are a carpenter and you're building a table and you have, you know, scraps of wood left over or shavings and things after the carpet, you know, after you've done all the carving and everything on it, what do you do with those? Well, first you do something else, but anybody here do it? Anybody do woodworking? Huh? Well, at first, don't you go through and see what's usable again? What can be redeemed, if you will? And then if it can't be, if the wood was rotten, um, if it, you, know, you found it was decayed inside or it was just slivers of things, what do you do with that? You cast it out. You don't keep it, do you? You know, and, and the difference is people said, so how do we decide which one the people are? And what I said was, we don't. That's where the problem comes in. Is God is the creator, not us. We are the created. And any time that we begin to wonder, okay, what are the rules? What do I have to do? What is it that I'm... Um, will make me good? What is it that will make me acceptable? What is it that will make me successful? What is it that will make me all those things? Then we are already going down the wrong road and we are leading ourselves into a path that will ultimately destroy us. Because the wisdom, as Paul puts it, of the world is foolishness to God. It's silly. Have you ever argued with a three-year-old? It doesn't work real well, does it? Because they're smart, and you're not. And, and what's even more amazing is that you manage to get dumber in the next 10, 15 years. Somehow or other, I mean, I guess our brains atrophy or something, I don't know. And yet, it's kind of funny because as adults, if we're really mature, we look at those things and we go, they just don't know. I mean, 
they have no idea of what's really out there, of what can really happen. They haven't had the life experience. Now, part of the problem is that we don't want them to have the life experience either, in spite of the fact that somehow or other we got here <laughs> um, and did it. But And so you end up with a power struggle. But even more so, if we're able to look at that with humor, and when we look at kids who are perfect, kids in church are, are not perfect when they sit there and don't get anything on their clothes, and they sit there very quietly, and they really listen to this adult stand and give a monologue for half an hour um, to them and take away from it such spiritual depth. Those kids have a problem. They're not kids, because kids don't do that. What do kids do? whatever comes up in the moment, right? <laughs> I mean, it just depends. And all too often, though, that's what we tend to think. Why is it that kids don't act like more like adults? <laughs> kind of weird, isn't it? The good news is they do get over it. You won't, but they do. Um, it does pass eventually. And the same thing with our teenagers or with our coworkers or with our um, or, or with just our neighbors. All too often, what we want to do is live into that same kind of foolishness that we think is wise. I mean, how many times have you tried to tell your husband the right way to do it? Or your wife, either one. It works either way. I mean, it doesn't have, Mother Nancy and I were talking the other day, and, and we had this disagreement. In fact, we just had this conversation out front. Uh, Pat Carpenter's got a book launch this week, and said, the colors are purple and green. And I just started laughing, and she said, what? And I said, only a woman would think of what the colors for a book launch are. I mean, that never would have even occurred to me what a book launch are. And, and Nancy goes, well, you would have occurred if your TV wasn't hooked up. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, that's important. <laughs> now imagine what that conversation looks like to God. It's like listening to two- and three-year-olds <laughs> discussing how to solve the world's problems, isn't it? He's going, oh, gee. So how do we get to that place where we can be perfect, where we can be complete, where we can be whole? Well, ultimately, the only way that we can do that is through surrender. Not through learning, not through being smarter, not by trying harder, but by saying, gee, I don't think I'm going to get this unless God helps me. And it takes a lot of work to surrender, doesn't it? It doesn't come naturally. I mean, we're not very good at saying, Lord, this really doesn't feel very good, but your will be done. But usually our response is, Lord, this really doesn't feel very good. Can you fix it? You know, you need to do something about it. I don't like it. There are a lot of people who don't believe in God because if God existed, there wouldn't be pain and suffering in the world. I assume they want a God who's a dictator that makes them not have pain and suffering and forces it on them. And all too often, that's the way that we approach life. So self-centered that we never get to be whole. And we're always broken. If we want to be whole, then we have to begin to stop asserting our own willfulness and start simply in every day, every moment, every second, sometimes saying, Lord, what is it that you want me to do in this situation? Lord, what is it that you need? 
why did you put me here at this time? What is it you would have me do at this time? Because when we begin to do those things that God wants us to do, regularly what we find is that all those things about turning the other cheek and loving your enemy and all those sorts of things suddenly become much clearer and much easier. Not because of something that we've done, but because we are who we were supposed to be. We become able to realize that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There is no way that if you are living into the purposes for which God made you, that any calamity, be it financial, health, relational, anything that comes upon you, there is nothing that can beset you, not even death, that will stop you from being what God created you to be. There's only one thing standing between you and being what God created you to be. You. I'm standing between myself and what God created me to be. Because all too often, we want to live out our lives in expectation that my needs will be fulfilled. What if we turned it around and said, Lord, forget about my needs. I want your needs to be fulfilled. I want to do what you want me to do. The most remarkable thing happens. Then we become who we were supposed to be. When I was in seventh grade, I had to take shop. I don't know if they do that anymore. but um, And um, any of you who know me know that... Um, Anything mechanically oriented or that you do with your hands, you're better off if I'm not there. Or at least standing far back because I'm dangerous, mostly to myself. But, um, and so I had to make something out of wood for wood shop. And I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, and, and the shop teacher took pity on me. And he said, well, make a bookcase. Because that's the easiest thing to do. You take like four two-by-fours, basically, or, or what is it, a plank of wood, one-by-twos one or something. There you go. Um, <laughs> you cut it even. That was where I got in trouble the first to begin with. Um, it was the straight line thing that always throws me. Um, so that it'll stand up, and then you chisel out a little groove thing so that you can put the other parts in there, and then you... Um, you know, can screw it in, and in this case, we were gluing it together. And if you could see that thing, I used to have it. I think I finally got rid of it a few years ago. I kept it to remind myself um, of how humble I truly need to be. <laughs> when you chisel it out, it's supposed to be smooth on the inside. Mine looked like an old bark <laughs> off of a tree. I mean, it was lumpy. And the bookcase did this. It never held books very well. <laughs> I was always amazed it didn't fall apart. And I got a C on it. Think about it, That's average. <laughs> How's that for a frightening thought? <laughs> Y'all like to go down to the furniture store and buy one of those average bookcases? Mostly because he took pity on me. Hmm? <laughs> 
he didn't want me back. Probably so, actually, if he had any sense. He thought he'd do better when we got into architectural drawing, mechanical drawing, nah. or leather working, nah. <laughs> no, those things work. And, and so, ultimately, the problem was is that no matter how hard I would try to do these things, I was doing them for all the wrong reasons. What, what's the, the real key to being good at woodworking? Enjoy it? What else? <laughs> well, yeah, some natural ability helps. How about patience? You know, it's amazing. You cannot sand something smooth in 35 seconds. which never quite registered with me. What is it that enables you to have that patience? Somebody here does woodwork, don't you? They can be worse, actually. But <laughs> What? Focus on, but why, why would you do it? Because you love waiting for the thing to be done? I've met people who fix their house that way. It's never finished. <laughs> I couldn't do that. But. You do it because in your mind, I th- at least is what I understand, in your mind, you can see what's going to be when you're done. And you're going to be pleased with it being complete and whole. You know, that's why you take the time. It's because you want it to be what it is that you're creating it to be. Imagine what it would be like if we lived out our lives, seeing our lives that way. That what we really need to do is to take our time and focus on seeing what it is that God created us to be and doing those things that God wanted us to do. It would be unlikely that you'd have road rage. It'd be unlikely that you'd need war. It'd be unlikely, actually, if you think about it, that you'd have to turn the other cheek because why would anybody hit you? You know, life could live in harmony and, and, and in peace. And so... The goal of the Christian is not to learn the rules or to try harder or be better or to somehow or other do things right, to be good. The goal of the Christian is to die to yourself so that you can live and become who you were created to be, living in Christ, who is perfect, being that which God truly made you to be and accomplishing only those things that God truly created you to accomplish. And then you become perfect. Well, given that we're not there yet, I think we determined that at the beginning, didn't we? How would we know if we arrived? Well, to begin with, we begin to look at all those things that Jesus listed for us. How are you doing on them? Because if you're just as puzzled and you're struggling just as much with those things today as you were when you're 18, you probably haven't progressed a lot. I can honestly say I don't struggle with them as much. I wish I could say I didn't struggle with them at all. That would be nice. But 
but it's not inconceivable to love my enemies. It's not inconceivable to help those in need, even though I know that it probably ultimately won't really help them. And the reason why it's not conceivable is because I don't do it unless the Lord wants me to do it. And the struggle that I have, and the reason why it isn't always easy, isn't because of that. It's because sometimes I get in too darn big a hurry or too worried about myself or too worried about the people I care about to bother to talk to them about it. Because when I really do take the time to try to find his will and to live in it, I know him. He's trustworthy. He's sure. And even if it seems bad in the moment, it will get better. And it will be good. All I've got to do is get from here to there. And I know that even though I'm walking through that valley of the shadow of, the de- of death, I dare not fear any evil because his rod and his death, they are with me. They will strengthen me. And I know that I will arrive. So what's the rule? Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Not as the world is perfect, but as your Father in heaven is perfect. How do we do it? Die to yourself and live for God. Amen. You have been listening to Come and See by Father Ron Baird. Come and See is a production of St. Andrew's Church in Lewis Center, Ohio. St. Andrew's is also available online at www.standrewspolaris.org. Please join us again when we invite you to come and see.